We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Would you join me in taking your Bibles and turning again to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 will be in verses 11 and 12 this morning. Just two short verses of Scripture as we study together, as we continue on this journey about our great and glorious hope. We're walking through the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and I am glad that you were here this morning to take this journey with us. As you're finishing up finding those two verses of Scripture, do you pray? Do you pray? That's a, that's a pretty straightforward question. Do you pray? And if the answer to that is yes, do you play, pray regularly? Do you pray fervently? Do you pray expectantly? Do you pray? If you answered yes that you pray, then I need to ask you a follow-up question. Why? Why do you pray? I mean, the Bible certainly tells us that God knows everything before it's going to happen, right? The Bible tells us that the plans of God cannot be thwarted, right? The Bible certainly tells us that God is sovereign and that He is in control, right? If all of those things are true, then why do you still pray? Why do we pray? We know very clearly that we're commanded to pray. But we also know, and we're going to see today, that Paul prayed. And Paul prayed a lot. And there's no greater champion in all of the Bible for the sovereignty of God and the providence of God than the Apostle Paul. Paul talked about all the time how God was in control and how God was running the universe and how God would ultimately see his plans come together. So Paul had full confidence that God not only did, had electing work and predestining work and foreknowledge and all of those words that we see coming up over and over again in the New Testament. So Paul knew all of those things, but he also understood that prayer and the sovereignty of God are not mutually exclusive. In fact, if you had to pick a chapter all throughout the Bible, through all 66 books that highlights the sovereignty of God, the control of God, the plan of God, the electing work of God, the foreknowledge of God, the predestining work of God, if you had to pick one chapter that highlighted that above every other chapter in the Bible, many theologians would tell you it is Romans chapter 9. Yet at the end of Romans chapter 9, when you change, flip the page to Romans chapter 10, verse 1. The very first words that we read in Romans chapter 10 are, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. So even after Paul had just talked about the electing work of God, the next thing that he does is offer a prayer that those people that he had talked about, that they would be saved and Paul prays for them. I, I don't think it's accidental when you read about the prayers of Jesus Jesus looked at Peter and said, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. He says, you are going, before the rooster crows the third time, you are going to deny me three times. But Peter, I am going to pray for you that you would not fail. Now, do we believe that Jesus knew what would happen with Peter? 
Absolutely. But Jesus still prayed. And if Jesus in his sovereign foreknowledge, if he knew and yet he still prayed, then obviously we are to pray. What about the whole book of Revelation? What is the whole book of Revelation about? It is about that God wins in the end. It is about that we have a soon incoming king whose name is King Jesus. We are told that the clouds are going to open and the trumpet is going to resound. And we are told that the great king warrior is going to come out of the sky, that he is going to reign for a thousand years. And after that millennium, that he is going to bind Satan um, forevermore and destroy him, that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. It's what the whole book's about. Yet the very last words of scripture in Revelation 22 were a prayer. But John says, even though all of this is definitive what does he pray come Lord Jesus he prayed for Jesus to come even after writing an entire book that testified to the coming of the Lord Jesus we are told um, that God's kingdom is definitely going to come that God is going to bring about his kingdom all throughout the New Testament yet what are we told to pray in the Lord's prayer thy kingdom come thy will be done We're told in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church. Yet we are constantly told in the New Testament that we should pray for the church and for the advancement of the church. What we see throughout scripture is that prayer aligns the believer with the heart of God, but God also works prayer into bringing about his plan. That's why James 5, 16 says, the prayer of a righteous man bring availeth much or the prayer of a righteous man brings about the purposes of God so prayer not only is important but what we pray is important and so what we're going to look at over the next few moments is we look at these verses we're going to learn how to pray we're going to learn the right kind of prayer we're going to know what we ought to pray for other people and we're going to know what we ought to expect other people to pray for us now with this in mind you'll remember last week that we talked about the realities of a real place called hell and a real place called heaven. And that's why you're going to see in just a moment that as we stand, Paul begins with, with this in mind. What is he saying? Uh, what in mind? The reality of eternal judgment. With the realities of eternal judgment before us, this then is how I pray for you and I give you as a model for how you ought to pray for each other. Let's discover that by standing and reading the word of God. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, we begin in verse 11. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, teach us today what we should pray for other believers and teach us what we should expect other believers to pray for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please be seated this morning? He says, with this in mind, with eternal realities before us, we constantly, verse 11, pray for you. When he says we constantly pray for you, that means that you are never off of our heart, that you're never off of our mind. It's not that Paul never had another thought besides to pray for them. It's that Paul never quit praying for them, that they, it was Basically, they were on his prayer sheet all of the time that he never ceased to lift them up when he prayed, he prayed for them. 
There's power in prayer, and Paul knew that this church was suffering. They were going through difficulty. They were going through problems. And not only are you a praying people, but how many of you in here are thankful that at some point in your life you are positive that somebody was praying for you? Have you ever had a time in your life where you look back and I've heard people tell me a thousand times, we felt the power of your prayers. We know people were praying for us. I've heard this before. I don't think I'd have made it if somebody hadn't been praying for me. There was something that was provided for me that only the power of prayer brought about. So many of you here today, you are walking, talking testimonies to the power of prayer. And for this church at Thessalonica to know that the Apostle Paul never quit praying for them, that he was, they were constantly on his mind, never off of his heart. But I want you to notice something before we talk about what you should be praying for other people and what other people should be praying for you. I think it's important for you to glance at these two verses and see what Paul did not pray. What Paul did not pray. There are so many things that he could have prayed that he did not pray. And so as I delved into this and tried to understand Paul's prayer life, I went back and and looked at the other epistles where Paul talked about praying for people and praying for the churches because he talks about praying for people constantly. And so began to do a little bit of a deep dive on Paul's prayer life for people. And how did Paul pray for people? How did Paul pray for churches? How did Paul pray for individuals? And I found something out and you can take the time to, we don't have time to go through every example today, but I challenge you to do this. What we do not find in Paul's prayers is this. He never prayed that their outward circumstances would change. Now that's odd to me. This is a church that is afflicted, that is persecuted, that is going through problems and difficulties. He never prayed for that to change. Now, why do I point that out? Because most of the time when we pray, what we pray for people is that their circumstances would change, that something would change for them. And it's not that that's a wrong prayer. It just may not be the exact thing that needs to be prayed for people because the number one priority of God may not be to get them out of their circumstances or get them out of their situation. It may be that God wants to do something in and through their situation that's with them. So Paul doesn't pray that their circumstances has changed. He doesn't even pray that the persecution would lift. He doesn't pray that. There's something else he doesn't change, doesn't pray. He doesn't pray that all of their desires would be met. He doesn't pray that they would get all of their wants. He doesn't pray that all their dreams would come true. He doesn't pray for them to have material prosperity. He does not pray for even for their physical health in this passage. He does not pray for any of those things. And yet, when we look at how he prays, we all of a sudden, some of us are going, wait a minute, that's, that's the majority of things that I pray for people. And it's also a lot of times the majority of the time what we ask people to pray for us, right? Now, it's not that it's not okay to pray for those things. And it's not even that it's not okay not to ask someone to pray for those things. But I think what we're going to see in just a moment is that the prayers that Paul offers are so much more incredible than what we sometimes ask for or ask people people to pray on our behalf because his prayer focuses on their perseverance, on their godliness, and on them furthering the kingdom of God. So, So let's do a little bit of a deep dive in verse 11. And the first thing, this is what we should pray for people and what people should pray for us. Number one, 
that our God may count you worthy of his calling. We constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling. That God would enable the, Thessalonica, the people in, Thessalonia, in Thessalonica to show outwardly what God had done for them inwardly. Continuing to display their standing in Christ. That God may count you worthy of his calling. It is not that he is saying he hopes that they will eventually be saved. They are saved. But he is saying that through their lives that they would display what God has already done in them. He said the same thing to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter one, chapter 4 verse 1. He said that you would live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. He's praying for them and this is quite simple. You got saved. Now I want to pray for you that you're able to live a life that looks like you're saved. That you would outwardly manifest your inward reality. Now he's not talking about their dreams coming true or their blessings or that they get everything that they want. He He's saying, now that you're saved, may your justification and your sanctification lead to the place that your calling is evident to the people that are around you. Isn't that an incredible prayer? What if when we prayed for our students that our number one prayer for them was not, oh God, help them to figure out what to major in, help them to make good grades, help them to get through with high school, praise God, help them to get uh, out of, uh, help them to get out of college or to find the right major, help them to find the right spouse but the main thing that we prayed is oh God over these students our prayer is please God help them to live lives worthy of the calling that they have received God help them to glorify God in the way that they live their life may it be that they live their lives in a way that people could watch them and see there's someone who has been called someone who's been justified someone who's been sanctified I'm praying that the power of God would so work through you that through your life it it would be obvious and it would be evident that God has done a work in you. Now, isn't that a prayer? That's a prayer. That's a prayer for people. And it's not that, not that we need to beat ourselves up. If you're praying for people, that's great. But I think we could, I think we could pray better, amen? I think we could pray deeper. I think we could pray more meaningful prayers when we think about what it really is that we are wanting to God to do in and through people's life. The first peacetime draft that ever took place was on October 29th, 1940. Males between the ages of 21 and 35 had been given a number. And each number was held by thousands of different registrants. And so as the numbers were called and as the numbers came out and the number would be announced, you would know by the number that you had been assigned whether your number had been called. But it wasn't just your number. You may share that same number with 6,000 other soldiers that immediately knew they had been drafted into service. Now at this point, it wasn't an option. You now, guess what? Whether you were before or not, you're in the military. Guess what? Now you're going to training. Guess what? Now you're going to war. You've been drafted. You've been called. There is no option. But what was so incredible about that point in history that there were people that were holding their number and praying not that they wouldn't get called, but praying that their number would get called. They wanted to be drafted. When we think about what it looks like 
to be a Christian and a child of God. It is that your number has been called and that you have been drafted. Now, if I have been drafted into the military, it is no longer an option for me to behave like a civilian. I'm going to wear what they tell me to wear. I'm going to march like they tell me to march. I'm going to obey where they tell me to obey. I'm going to go where they tell me to go. I'm going to serve how they tell me to serve. Because now I'm a property of the U.S. military. And in that time, it is my goal to do what I'm told and to serve. Friends, what we ought to be praying for people is that when their number is called in salvation... That they would be so utterly thrilled with the calling that's on their life that they would live that out recognizing that when we sing the old song, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before, that we are now in the army of God and soldiers of Christ need to act like soldiers of Christ. And there are too many people that are claiming the name of Christ that are acting like defense. They're guilty of treason and they're guilty of espionage because to look at them, you could not tell that they're not working for the other side. And Paul says, I'm praying that you would act like the person that you have been called to be. You know, we had a big day yesterday, obviously, sports, the World Series wrapped up, huge SEC ball games were taking place yesterday. Um, If you were on your couch yesterday and you had your channel changer that is with you, you probably burn it up going from station to station to station. My family can hardly stand watching television with me when there's multiple games on because I I try to time everything where we don't watch a commercial. I go from this game to this game to this game and back again and inevitably we miss plays. And and so so I'm kind of doing that yesterday and I'm going, going, going back and forth and back and forth and we're watching. Um, We're not only watching football, but we've got the World Series on. And one thing you realize when you are watching sports is that it doesn't matter what sport it is that every single position on the field is important that if you're on the offensive line and you don't block somebody is getting hurt that if you are playing second base and you decide to take a playoff guess where that ball's coming right up the middle And what I'm telling you that Paul is trying to stress to these people is that the calling that you've been given, you have been placed in a position by God, a position that you were placed in that you weren't, and a position that you were placed in that you weren't. And if that's the case, then we've all got to play the positions that God placed on our lives or some job isn't going to get done. There's going to be a ball that gets hit up the middle. There's going to be a block that's not going to be made. There's going to be a shot that's going to be missed. And it's going to be because a lot of times that Christians are not living up to the calling that they've been given, that our God may count you worthy of his calling. Now, there's a prayer. Number two, number two, we stay in verse 11 for this. And that by his power, he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. That his power may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. Now, don't be tempted to think that God's saying that in this, we hope that all of your dreams come true. What, when it says good purpose, what is he talking about? 
that God would fulfill the purposes of yours that are good and godly. That God's power would work in you to do what you are supposed to be doing. I am, I've had it up to here. I'm just, just, can we just talk like family? Can we just talk like family for just a little while this morning? I am so absolutely, to use an old word, abate of hearing what I'm constantly hearing about how prayers are supposed to be manipulations to get God to do whatever it is that an individual wants God to do. And then we take scripture out of context and we back that up. And we say things like, well, if you command a mountain to go into the sea, then you're good. Then it's obviously going to happen because Jesus said that we could pray for that. And that Jesus said that whatever that we ask in his name that would be granted. And so we have taken those and we've offered them as blanket prayers that we ought to be able to ask for anything that we want and that Jesus is some genie in a bottle that by praying that he's going to pop out of the bottle and grant you your three wishes. Shame on the church. Shame on the church. Because there was something that was understood and underlying the context of every one of those verses. And it wasn't that you would have whatever you wanted to have. Oh God, adorn my arms with Rolexes. Lord, may I drive nothing but Bentleys. Oh God, may you give me a house bigger than anyone that I know. The reason that those prayers aren't answered is because of the fact that you now have a heart of Satan and not the heart of Christ. And if you were asking for the things that God desired you to ask for, you would be praying for the will of God and not the will of man. Yet we have told man to forget the will of God, to forget scripture and ask for whatever it is that you want. What we ought to be intentional about is asking for the things that God wants for us and through careful study of the word, we know that what Paul is saying is that when you have good purposes and your desires are aligned with the will of God, then you pray differently. How many of you know that? How many of you know when you're walking with Jesus, you pray differently than when you're not? It's not that people that aren't walking with God don't pray. They do pray but it's a whole different thing, amen? Because people will begin to pray for anything that they want, but all of a sudden you get in your Bible and see if you don't pray differently. You start spending time around believers and you get in church and you start praying differently because your prayers become less inherently selfish and they become more born out of a desire to bring glory to God. So you aren't so much worried about bending the will of God to your will. Now what are we worried about? I'm worried about my prayers bending my will to match his. That's a whole different type of praying and that's the type of praying that Paul is talking about that by his power he would fulfill every good purpose and every act prompted by your faith that God would work in you as you are working for him we established as we began that sovereignty is not an excuse it is not an excuse not to pray because we have a God who knows everything we're still commanded to pray but do you know one of the things that I think is akin to to that same damning theology is the theology that I think was probably um, what we saw in 1 Thessalonians and what we're going to see as we continue to study 2 Thessalonians. There had begun to be this idleness inside the church, this complacency that existed because they believed in the imminent return of Christ. 
which we should believe in the imminent return of Christ, but where their theology went bad is there were some of them was saying it doesn't really matter what we do. Jesus is about to come back anyway, so we don't really have to push. We don't really have to work. We can just wait on that, and God's going to come back and make everything how it's supposed to be. Now, the issue for that is just like sovereignty is not an excuse not to pray, sovereignty is also not an excuse not to work. And so what we see is, is that though we pray and we ask God, oh God, please work on our behalf. Please work through our efforts. Please save people. Please convict people. Please bring people into your right purpose and into your will. And we pray these things over people. But while we're praying those things, if there's something you can do about it, stop praying about it and do it. Now, if that sounds sacrilegious to you, I want you to hear what I'm saying. It's not that we shouldn't pray, but sometimes we're praying for the very things that God's already equipped us to do something about. And God's looking at you and saying, you can spend, keep on praying, but I've already answered the prayer. All you have to do is be a part of the answer. Do it. And so what I'm telling, is that I, telling you is that I believe that through prayer, as we pray for the right things, all of a sudden the conviction of God comes on us and we begin to see how we can be a part of that answer. You would have never seen that had you not prayed. You would have never seen that had you not asked God to open that up to you. And as we pray that, I mentioned our students, and let's kind of keep on that vein because it's not just with them, but it's for so many people because we hear so much about encouraging people to follow their passion and pursue their dreams, right? Follow your passion. Do what it is that makes you happy. In fact, you're going to hear over and over again, even when you go to college, you need to look within and find what it is inside you that makes you happy. And you need to go about it all out for that. That's terrible advice. That's horrible advice. Why? Because when you look within, you may find something that you shouldn't be having anything to do with. And your happiness may lead you to something that is not what God would have for you. And what's so fascinating about what I'm about to tell you is it's not just the biblical message. There's actually a study that's been done by Stanford and Yale. Not spiritual studies at all. But it's actually proven what the Bible has told us all along. And it tells, and what the study showed, that those who achieve the most in life don't look within, but they look outward and they look upward. So instead of taking your life, let me just give you a, a very practical example and saying, what do I want to do? Let me find the job where I can do the least amount of work. Let me find the job where I can most easily retire. Let me do the, find the job where I can have the most vacation. Let me find the job where I can make the most money. Let me find the job where I can live where I want to live. And if I can find those things, then I'm going to find happiness. What the Bible tells us, and it's backed up here, is that people that really experience joy and purpose in their life don't look inside and then plan a life. They look outside and try to find what it is that's summoning your life. There ought to be a call that's on your life. Now you say, well, wait a minute, Larry. Are you talking about giving your life to the ministry? Maybe. Maybe. There are some students that need to consider 
that God may have a deeper, stronger calling on your life than what you have settled for, number one. But, but not predominantly, that's not what I'm talking about. Predominantly what I'm talking about is that we need to quit looking at our lives. What Paul's praying is that we would quit seeing our lives as our own. That you can do whatever you want to do. And we would start praying that God would help us to see what he wants us to do. Help us to see the needs that are right out there in front of us. That we would be called by God. You say, well, what does a calling look like? One of the ways the church has failed, failed failed over the generations is that we have communicated to young people that missionaries and ministers are called and that everybody else just gets to do whatever they want to do no your life is not your own you were bought with a price so what does that mean i'm not telling you that everybody here ought to be a preacher or a youth minister, or a missionary. That's not what I'm telling you. But what I am telling you is that whatever it is that you do, it ought to be a calling by God. That if you see it, you say, this is the way that God has called me to make an impact on the kingdom of God. Whether that be through nursing, or teaching, or coaching, or business, or politics, or whatever that may be. It ought to be that it's a calling outside of yourself. And the fundamental reason that you're doing it is not to find personal satisfaction but it's to exalt Christ and advance the kingdom now if we started thinking about our lives and our families and our careers and our education like that how would it change things monumentally it would change things and that's what Paul is talking about and then finally verse 12 we pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in us and we in him. We, we hear that phrase a lot, glorify. Lord, we glorify you. We bring glory to your name. What does it mean that God would be glorified or that the name of the Lord would be glorified? It means that our lives would exalt all that he is that we would be our lives would be on display in a way that the glory of Christ would shine through in our lives so often when we sing about giving glory to God certainly we give glory to God when we praise him through song but we give glory to God by the way that we conduct our lives. And what Paul is praying for this church is that ultimately the, form, the, the fundamental desire, and this is if you hadn't paid attention this morning, if it's been a kind of a rough morning, maybe it's been a long weekend, maybe some of those games I was talking about yesterday didn't go your way, so you hadn't been able to tune in today, then would you just give me a, about... 45 seconds and then you can buzz back out again just come in close for just a minute because you need to hear this one of the reasons that your prayers are ineffective and that so often my prayers are ineffective is because they are so focused on you and your family and your wants and your desires. And what Paul is saying is, if we want to radically change the way we pray, the fun, number one fundamental desire of our prayer life ought to be the glory of Christ. 
Let Christ be glorified. You say, well, how would that change things? It would change everything. That instead of asking God to change your circumstances and change your situations, you would pray, oh God, I pray that in this circumstance and in this situation that I would give you glory, that I would live my life in such a steadfast way, that I would persevere, that I would honor you, that I would not fall into temptation, that you would be glorified. Then all of a sudden our lives are seen, not as ways that God could be a cosmic wish granter, not a genie in a bottle, not Santa Claus, but now what we're praying for is that God would equip and enable us to do what we could never do ourselves and no matter what happens with our circumstances, that Christ is honored. There's a difference when we see prayer that way. The reputation of the Lord must be our biggest concern. Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men so that people will see and glorify your Father in heaven. When believers glorify Jesus, they will be glorified in Him. And then all of a sudden, what starts taking place in your life is changes that you won't even see. Look at me. God is changing you. And He changes you through His Word and through your prayer life. And sometimes the changes that God is bringing about in you, you may not even see them yourselves because they're incremental and God is doing that. And sometimes some, you'll hear a Christian friend or a fellow believer, they'll notice something in you and they'll say something and you'll think, well, that's not me because it's not naturally you. You know yourself and you know your own shortcomings. But what they've seen is that God is working sanctification in you and that God is changing you little bit by little bit by little bit to become more like Christ. And that only happens when we start praying in a way that Christ be glorified in our lives and the lives of believers and not just that we would get what we wanted out of God. John Owen centuries ago, said this. He who prays as he ought will endeavor to live as he prays. He who prays as he ought will endeavor to live as he prays. So, are we praying to change God? He does not change like shifting shadows. Our God is immutable. So we pray, not that God would be changed, but we pray that we would be changed and that the God who is the immovable mover would do things inside our lives and inside our church and inside our families that would bring him glory because the saints of God are not only connected to him, but our desires become his desires. And when that takes place, we are able to command a mountain to go into the sea. Why? Because we are desiring the very things that God desires in us and for us. Can we pray for each other like that? Can you pray for me like that? And I pray for you like that. And we pray for each other like that. Can we be a church that knows how to pray for each other in such a way that we are changing the face of the way that we approach prayer and the way that we understand the call that's on our life so that above everything else, 
that God and our Lord Jesus may be glorified, exalted, and honored. Would you stand with me? Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.